I want to start my sermon today with a very simple question, but one that has far-reaching implications. What brought you to church? I don't only mean today, but today counts. What brought you to begin attending Old Pine? And if this is the first time you're here, I'll ask you too. What brought you here on this day? Now, I'll tell you some of the reasons I've heard from people as to why they're here. Sometimes people know someone in our congregation and they get invited to come. Sometimes people are looking for a specifically Presbyterian church and we just happen to be the one that they find. A surprising number of people have come here because they've passed by the front of the church and they've noticed the quotes on our signboard. And they've said, you know, something interesting is happening in this old building. I want to come check that out. A young man told me recently that he came here because of all the churches that he researched, we had the best Google reviews. (laughs) Here's my point. There are a thousand different reasons that people might decide to come to church, but there's one fundamental question underneath all of them. Is God involved? In other words, when you make a decision, do you think that you're operating alone? Or are you open to the possibility that you are being guided? And here I'm referring to what we in the church refer to as a calling, to be called by God to do something. It means that we're not completely free. We do not operate autonomously. We are part of something larger than ourselves that affects us. And when we make a decision... One of two things can happen. Either we can be moving closer to what God is calling us to do, or we can be moving away from that. And therefore, every decision that we make should be judged primarily on this basis. Is this what God wants me to do? That is what it means to have a calling. We're going to talk more about this today, and especially what it means to have a calling in our contemporary culture. Somebody who knew a lot about calling was the Apostle Paul. We're, in, we're going to be starting today a series on Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, and we begin today with the, just the first three verses of that letter. So let's listen now to what the Spirit of God is saying to you and to the church. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Holy God, as we meditate today on your holy scripture, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight and life-giving to us and through us as your people. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I want to make three points in my sermon today. Number one, the source of our calling. Where does our calling come from? Number two, the diversity of calling, why everybody has a different calling. And number three, the uniformity of calling, why everybody's calling, while different on the surface, is ultimately the same calling. So number one, where do our callings come from? Well, this one is pretty easy. They come from God, but it will take a little bit of explanation. Psalm 139 says this, All the days of my life were written in your book 
before one of them came to be. That makes it sound like God already knows our path. That God has created us for a reason, and that is so important to understand, that God is not throwing dice. God is not playing around with chemicals, kind of wondering what accident might spring out of this random assortment of chemicals. If you are alive, it means he deliberately created you. He chose to put you on earth, and he chose to give you unique gifts with a specific idea of how you might use them. Now, that is incredibly affirming. But it's also challenging because it means there are some vocations that are going to be right for us and others that are going to be wrong. And I have to say that already we are swimming against the culture because what are kids told from the moment that they are young? You can be whatever you want to be. You can be anything that you want to be. And I see a bunch of stone faces because everybody's thinking, that's what I tell my kids. (laughs) I do too. It's okay. We're going to talk about that. These are well-intentioned pieces of advice. They are meant to be encouraging. They are meant to give kids a sense of possibility and hope. There's just one problem with this message. It's not true. You shouldn't be whatever you want to be. God has created every person with unique gifts. And there's nothing wrong with that. If you are a skilled painter and that is your calling, it's not a problem that you're also not a skilled physician. And being a skilled artist is going to be what makes you happy. If God created you to be an artist, then you will not be happy unless you find a way to live into that calling. Now maybe it's a matter of being more creative in an otherwise non-creative workplace. The point is that you can't just be anything that you want and expect to have a sense of purpose in your life. Let's look at how Paul describes his vocation. He begins his letter like this. Paul, called to be an apostle by the will of God. That's how Paul introduces himself. I, Paul, am an apostle because of the will of God. In other words, God told me what to be. Now, if you know anything about Paul's biography, you you know one thing for sure. He did not want to be an apostle. He hated the apostles. Paul was a persecutor of the early church. He thought Christians were all heretics. He dedicated his life to oppressing them. He had them flogged. He had them put into prison. He advocated for their death. One story that we know is that he watched as the apostle Stephen was stoned to death right in front of him. The Bible says that Paul approved of this execution. And therefore, if you had asked Paul in those early days, what are you going to be when you grow up? He would have said, I'm going to rid the world of Christianity. That was his choice. That was his desire. But then something happened to him, not from within his own desires and ego. Something happened to him from the outside. He was on his way to to Damascus to root out the Christians who were living there when he had a blinding vision of God. It knocked him to the ground, and he heard a voice that said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he recognized that this voice was Christ. This experience changed Paul's life overnight. He suddenly had a vocation. He suddenly knew what God wanted him to do. No longer was he going to decide what he was going to do with his life. Now he had a calling from God to preach the good news of the gospel. And here's a very important point. For Paul to accept this new calling meant great suffering. Because suddenly he was the persecuted. 
He went from persecutor to persecuted. Suddenly, he was the enemy. This is how he describes his own suffering. He says, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day adrift in the open sea. This is not to mention all the times he was imprisoned. And of course, he was eventually beheaded as a martyr in Rome. And therefore, this calling was not easy. And yet, Paul said it was the greatest thing that had ever happened to him. The joy, the bliss, the sense of purpose that it gave him was greater than any pleasure he had ever known. In another letter, Paul puts it this way, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and now I count those things as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And I want to stop here, because if you are a normal American, this should not make sense. It shouldn't make sense that a difficult life could be better than an easy life. It begs the question, do we even know what human beings really need? Because if you look at American culture, then you'll get the answer, well, if you get this new gadget, you'll be happier. If you have this new car or this new house or this new outfit, you'll feel fulfilled because we live in a highly consumer culture. But we have to stop to ask, is that even true? What do human beings really need? Of course, people have had different answers to that question. Freud said that pleasure, usually sex, was our deepest need. He said that if we get pleasure, we'll feel satisfied. And that wasn't a new idea. A lot of Greeks used to believe that too. That was the philosophy called Epicureanism. And yet in real life, it usually doesn't work out that way. The people that I know who dedicate their lives to getting pleasure always wind up feeling empty inside. They get pleasure, but it just doesn't feel like enough. But there have been other ideas. One of Freud's students, Alfred Adler, said that power was the greatest human need. If people get power, they'll feel satisfied. And certainly you can see people in the world who crave power. But again, when you look at people who have actually managed to accumulate great power, they don't seem very happy. I'm thinking now of Vladimir Putin. He has a lot of power. He does not seem to have a lot of inner peace. Well, after Adler, along came a man named Viktor Frankl, and I'm looking at Ilsa now. Ilsa is from Germany, and we both love the ideas of Viktor Frankl. Frankl was a psychologist who spent two years in the concentration camps of World War II. All of his family, his wife, his parents, his siblings were murdered in the camps. He saw the most unspeakable human depravity, and he came out of that experience with a deep understanding of human nature. And here is what Frankel discovered. It's not comfort that human beings crave. It's not power, it's not pleasure, it's not money, it's meaning. Frankel said that when you strip away everything else, what human beings need to know is why they are alive. They need to have a why, not a how, not how do I live, but why am I here in the first place? They need to know that their life is not an accident of a random universe, but they, that they were created for a reason. They're here on purpose. Now, Christianity gives that to us because it says, indeed, God created you with specific gifts and put you here for a reason, and therefore, life is not a blank canvas. 
It's about discovering a path that already exists. All the days of my life were written in your book before one of them came to be. Okay, you say, but how do I know what my calling is? That brings us to point number two, the diversity of our callings. And here's the really good news. There are as many callings as there are people. And that is the remarkable thing about the Christian faith. You can be as weird and as eccentric or as normal as you want and still be true to your calling. You can be a Christian tattoo artist. That can be your calling. You can be a Christian engineer. That can be your calling. The point is that you are being true to the unique gifts that God gave you when he created you. And I promise you, you do have gifts. If you are stuck on this point, if you don't think that you have gifts, talk to me. Because you do, I promise you. And here I want to talk to you about an insight from the theologian Martin Luther. Back when Martin Luther was alive, there was a rigid division in European culture between secular work and sacred work. The the medieval church divided society into two groups, those with sacred orders, the monks, the priests, the nuns, all those people who do all that godly stuff, and then everybody else who don't do the godly stuff. And what this meant is that ordinary people didn't tend to view their lives as sacred callings. Martin Luther had a big problem with that. He said that all human endeavors can be part of the way God calls us to live in the world because God, of course, created this world. And he gave all of these gifts to all of these unique and diverse people. If God created you to be a great plumber, then being a plumber is a God-ordained gift. Doing good plumbing makes God happy. The skill you employ, the joy that you see on people's faces when their toilets are working again, this is your calling. Martin Luther had a great quote about shoemakers. He said, the Christian shoemaker does his duty not by putting little crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes, because God is interested in good craftsmanship. I love that. You remember the question I asked at the beginning of the sermon, why are you here today? Is it possible that God brought you here for a reason? Maybe there's a person you're meant to see today or a conversation that you're meant to have. I mean, maybe you won't realize it until years later. The point is that you are not an autonomous being in this world. You are part of a story that God is writing. And so your job is not to come up with your own story, but to listen for the voice of God. And I would just point out to you here that the word calling comes from the Latin vocare, which means voice. It means that there is a voice that is speaking to you from the outside, and our task is to get quiet and listen to it. And I want to tell you that we in the Presbyterian Church take this idea of calling very seriously. We do not have a class of priests who are up here and all the laity is down here. In fact, this room right now is full of deacons and elders. When people become a deacon or an elder in our denomination, they are ordained. These are not volunteer positions. These are ordained callings, and they are on the same level that the ordination of Rebecca and me is on. Because we believe that we are all called to do the work of God. And so I don't care who you are, you are important. Rebecca mentioned that in a few minutes we're gonna have a ministry fair downstairs. I wanna point out Lonnie is here with us today. She's done a remarkable job of creating this beautiful bulletin board, 
and it describes all the different ministries that you can get involved with. You can join the mission committee. You can sing in the choir. You can help with children's ministries, finance, personnel, property, Bible study, stewardship. I don't care how unorthodox you think you are. There is some way that you can get involved in the life of this congregation because God loves you in your diversity. And that brings us to point number three. Underneath all that diversity, how are we the same? Well, let's turn again to Paul. Here's what he says to the Corinthian Christians. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Paul tells the Corinthians that even though, even though they, they have different callings, they are so many different occupations, there is one way in which they are all the same. They are all called to be what he calls saints. And if you know anything about ancient Corinth, this should take your breath away. Because Corinth was famous for its immorality. It was a big port city, which means that it had sailors coming and going, drinking and carousing. Think of Bourbon Street in New Orleans or the Red Light District in Amsterdam. Corinth was famous around the world for its sinfulness. And so it was the opposite of what most people thought of as saint-like. But worse than that was the fighting within the church. Sisters and brothers in Christ were at each other's throats. They judged one another. They formed factions. We know the truth. You don't know the truth. We've been here longer than you. We know the right way to be the church. You don't know the right way to be the church. We want this person as our leader. No, we want this person as our leader. All of which was profoundly painful to Paul because he had brought this congregation together in the first place. He knew that these Christians were deeply flawed and sinful, and yet he chooses to call them saints. And so it makes you ask the question, what is a saint? Isn't a saint somebody who just doesn't sin? Isn't a saint someone who has transcended these judgmental tendencies and doesn't fight with anybody? Well, not for Paul. For Paul, we have no goodness in ourselves. That was Paul's theology, that our relationship with God is based entirely on God's grace. That was his gospel, that we can't save ourselves. God can and does save us from ourselves. Now, here's the thing. The Corinthians already knew this. Paul spent 18 months with these people. He taught them the gospel himself. They had all experienced profound transformations in joy. They had all experienced reconciliation with their sisters and brothers. All of these boundaries had been broken down. Slave owners worshiping together with slaves. It's just that they had forgotten it. They had allowed pride and doubt to creep back in. And that brings us <clears throat> to what I would argue is the most characteristic quality of a saint. Are you ready for it? I warn you, it's not sexy. It's not dramatic. Saints are not the most pious people. They're not the most moral people. They're not the most articulate people. Here's what a saint is. People who remember what God did. Saints are people with good memories. And it separates saints from a lot of us because it's so easy to forget. I mean, see if you relate to this. God comes into your life. God pulls you out of a dark place. He gives you a sense of purpose, maybe for the first time in your life. And you make all these promises to God. I'll never forget you. I will dedicate my life to you. But time passes. And you forget. 
and you begin to trust other things besides God to make sense of your life, and you reach a point in which you start to doubt your own experience, you wonder, was that really God? Or could I have done that myself? What makes people saints is that they remember. And really, that's what Paul's letter is. We'll see this again and again through this sermon series. What Paul does is to remind them of things that he already taught them. Don't you remember how much God loves you? And I think this is why it's so important to come regularly to worship. You're not going to have a conversion experience every time you come here on Sunday. But you do need to be reminded of what you already know. That God has a plan for you. That there's a purpose for your life. That Christ died for you. That God calls you to repent, to lay down your burdens. So that you can be freed from them and reconciled to one another and to God. And when you look at people who do remember this, you'll find a paradox. The more saint-like they become, the less attention they draw to themselves. There's kind of an irony there that, that the better they become, the more they fade into the background, right? Because their lives don't point at themselves, they point at God. They do get better, they become more loving, they become more productive, they usually get happier. And yet this is ironically less important to them because the point is no longer them, the point is loving and serving God and existing in his mercy all the time. C.S. Lewis had such a beautiful uh, expression about this. Listen closely to this. C.S. Lewis said, if you aim at heaven, you get earth thrown in. But if you aim at earth, you get neither. I'll say that again. If you aim at heaven, then you get happiness here on earth too. But if you aim at earthly happiness, you don't even get that. I want to end this sermon with a prayer that was written by a man whom I regard as a saint, although he was far from perfect. There's a quote in our bulletin from this man. His name was Thomas Merton. He was a pretty interesting person. As a young man, he had a lot of literary skill. He had the promise to become a famous writer, and he began to engage in literary circles in New York City. There was a lot of indication that he could have had great fame and wealth, and instead, he became a monk. He took a vow of poverty, and he spent the last 40 years of his life living in a monastery in Kentucky. The interesting thing about reading Merton for me is that although he is one of the most brilliant people I've ever encountered, when I read his work, I don't feel close to him so much as he brings me closer to God. And in my mind, that's what a saint does. If you think that being a saint means being perfect and having all the answers. Listen closely to Merton's prayer. My Lord God, I have no idea where I am going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end, nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think I am following your will does not mean that I am actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does, in fact, please you. And I hope I have that desire in all that I am doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. Therefore, I will trust you always. Though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death, I will not fear, for you are ever with me and you will never leave me to face my perils alone. Amen.